Sure. Hi, everybody. Millions of people, not millions, but many people have written to me to say I need to interview my next guest. I'm delighted to have Masih Alinejad. How are you doing, Masih? I'm trying to be good. Thank you so much for having me. Um, you corrected yourself by saying millions, but millions of people in Iran now asking you to be their voices. And thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure. As you know, some people think that I have a political agenda, which I don't know why they think that. I support the right of any person, tall, short, gay, straight, Muslim, not Muslim, atheist, religious, to live a life free with dignity and so if I can lend my small voice to the to the battle I'm happy to do it before I give I cede the floor to you I want to introduce you for the people who may not know who you are uh, you're originally born in Iran you're now Iranian American you let me just uh, read you won the 2015 Geneva Summit for Human Rights and Democracy Women's Rights Award for your anti-hijab uh, campaign you wrote a book Tight, uh, an English book. You have several books in Farsi, but you wrote an English book called The Wind in My Hair. Did I cover some of the key points? Is this a good intro? No. The good intro is I'm a badass. I'm a troublemaker. <laughs> You're a honey badger. Yes. Uh, I like that actually you created this. It's uh, that, that is, Look, forget about the award that I received. Let's just focus on my work to give voice to millions of Iranians who actually practice their civil disobedience every day. Look, for eight years, I have been publishing videos of women, actually telling the morality police that we're not gonna listen to you. This is my body and my choice, and we have been ignored for years and years. So if anyone tell you that you have political agenda, tell them that this is a human rights issue. And every single person, doesn't matter what kind of political agenda you have, whether you're Republican, Democrat, you're left, liberal, you're a human being. When you see that women are being bitten up, being jailed, lashes, killed now, like Mahsa Amini, of course uh, you have to give voice to voiceless people. And I'm, I'm really pleased to be in your show. Thank you so much. Oh, it's my pleasure. What is it that caused you to be, I mean, I, I think I know the answer. Look, we are born the way we are. Some people are fighters. Some people are tall. Some people are short. Some people are cowardly. You are you clearly have the 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 passion to stand up and say this is not right. Uh, I don't care what the repercussions are to me. Obviously, you receive death threats. There are threats to your family and so on. Is there a way by which we can compel people, whether it be in Iran, but whether it be in the West? to actually uh, drink some of your honey badger uh, bottles so that we can get them to not be apathetic and cowardly and to actually get engaged in the battle? Look, it's very simple. I'm coming from a country where like thousands of people um, got killed just because of having a different opinion. How I can leave the country and then say that, okay, this is not my business. I'm going to have my own freedom. I'm going to just enjoy my life. When you experience um, Sharia laws, when you experience the brutality of regime, you cannot just put everything behind because you're not a balloon. Just go up in the sky and forget about everything. Forget about your childhood. Forget about your teenagehood. Forget about your people, your sisters. Your... You cannot. I'm the same. So... It has nothing to do with like being fearless, brave, or no, believe me, I have fear inside myself. I, I, I'm scared as well. I'm scared of uh, like uh, my, my family, my son, my stepchildren. 
They're all in Iran? My, my, my family, all of my family, they are in Iran. They put my brother in prison. They did everything. Like teenagers right now, the, tic, the, the TikTok generations, like Mahsa, like Ghazale, like Hadith, are getting killed in Iran. So you have to make a decision to live in fear and paranoia or do something to make your oppressors to be scared of you, to have fear of you. I, I, made, I made up my mind that I might get, you know, cancer or die out of a disease, corona or car accident. I have only one life. And I dedicated my life to give voice to Iranian women who actually live under Sharia laws and they don't have any voice. But now they don't even need me. The camera became like their weapon, my brother. You know, you see their videos, no? No, that's amazing. Well, I saw one of the things that touched me and made me think, look, I, I, I need to reach out to uh, Masih so that we can have a chat, is when you, 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 there's a clip where you're showing your indignation at sort of, you know, the, the Western intelligentsia and the Western feminists and so on. And this is something that I've been tackling because I'm in academia. So I see these positions in academia, right? If you criticize the hijab or you criticize oh the niqab. So you know right? the pain, you know the pain, my brother. Exactly. You, you, you're, you're an Islamophobe. You're a bigot. You don't appreciate the exotic nature of the hijab. So I actually get angrier at the Westerners who defend some of the stuff than I do at even the butchers who are implementing the Sharia because at least you can argue in their case, this is the world that they are born into. They're just living out their religion, whether you like it or not. But the Westerners should know better and yet they are complicit in this craziness. That's a very good point. Look, actually you're coming from academia. You understand that how we've been under attack. And guess Guess what? Uh, those who are attacking us, they never want to go back and live under Sharia laws. Those who attack us, and for eight years I've been under attack by many of uh, you know professors from different universities and telling me that you're causing Islamophobia. Yes. They, they go on media with perfect English, with perfect English. And I have to, like, struggle a lot to make a point because you know because all my life I've, I've I've I lived in Iran I've experienced the brutality of Islamic laws and those who never even lived there they only go there in their in Muslim countries for vacation right they have the privilege of uh, living uh, in the West being protected by laws and and, and, and unbelievable that the same people with perfect English attacking us and telling us that we know better than you. Hijab is a sign of resistance. You causing Islamophobia. You're making, uh, you're causing division. I mean, I'm like, okay, so I'm, I'm inviting all of you. Go and live under Taliban. Right. Go and live under Islamic Republic. Look, my brother, you're coming from Lebanon. You, you, your background tells you that, okay, Put your political agenda even behind. Stick with those who, um, you know, openly and bravely criticize Islamism. So that's why maybe your background. I mean, I really want to know that from academia, from your background. What makes you different from those who are attacking us? Who have been attacking attacking us for years and years? Like, shh. Well, I think I think just like you, uh, I have the personality whereby I can't I can't sit around idly while I see horrible things being done to people whether they are muslim or jewish or non-believers 
that's just the way that I'm made, number one. Number two, the fact that I grew up in Lebanon, the fact that Arabic is my mother tongue, the fact that I understand Islam fully, the fact that I can quote you all the Quranic things, it makes it a lot more difficult to delegitimize me because if, if I say something to a Westerner, he can't hit me with, but you don't understand the Middle East, but you don't understand true Islam because I'm always going to know more than him, right? If, if my name yeah. was John Smith, and I said the things that I said, then it becomes harder for you to, 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 you know, to, to take my stuff seriously. But when I speak flawless Arabic, it becomes a lot harder for you to... And, and, and I remember when we first began, before offline, I, I said your name and you were excited that I was the only one to say your name properly. Well, because I come from the region, so you okay. cannot delegitimize me. I know what I'm talking about. I only wish that a lot of our friends who, who sit in the, in the beautiful salons in New York and scream out Islamophobia, as you said, would live in those areas for three days and then maybe they would have a less tolerant views of Sharia law. But my brother, look, as you mentioned, that those Westerners who butcher my name, they cannot even pronounce my name, telling me in many conferences that I, I took part, telling me that, look, I've been in Iran four years ago. The hijab became really colorful. It's now became part of their fashion. Those who even butcher my name, right. telling me that, you know, um, hijab is part of Iranian culture. We don't want to touch this issue. We've been talking to, and I get really furious that how come you live in America and enjoying freedom, taking freedom for granted? You take to the street and saying, my body, my choice. But when it comes to women of Iran and Afghanistan, you even telling me that you know better than me, it breaks my heart. But what's happening right now, it's happening right now, all of them, I, I wish I could name them and invite them to come to your show and talk to me now. Barbara Slavin, Human Majd, many of them saying that morality police, it's not a big deal. Revolutionary guards, they're not a big deal. You know, they're doing just their job. Hijab has become really colorful. The same people now attacking me again and saying that this movement has nothing to do with you. It's just, you know, they, for me, writing about this for eight years, they want me to keep silent because I work for Voice of America TV as a freelancer. But those who actually work for different media, so they receive money from American taxpayers as well. They tell me, Shh, you keep silent. Why? Because still they want to downplay the cause. They want to downplay the protest in Iran and saying to the rest of the world, this is just a feminist movement against compulsory hijab, which is wrong. Right. I'm not scared of them even calling me the agent of CIA, the agent of Trump, the agent of Mossad, the agent of MI6, anything. They call me, that's not going to scare me because my people in Iran facing guns and bullets and you understand that. So that is why I'm telling them, Keep quiet. Let us talk. Let us, the women who experience Sharia laws, talk. How do you, you explain? You know, that, that, that's horrible. Iranians want an end to a gender apartheid regime. And those who have experienced Sharia laws, they're not going to allow you to hijack Iranian revolution. What percentage do you think? I mean, I know you don't know the exact number, but from, from, from your knowledge of Iranian society, what percentage of Iranians do you think are dogged defenders of the current regime versus, you know, the silent majority undoubtedly who absolutely wants an end to this, they want a free Iran. What's, what are the ratios like? I mean, actually, we have numbers. Okay. Look, the last election, 
only 20% of the you know society turn up to to vote for Ibrahim Raisi they have money they have oil money they they can buy a lot of voters they can buy a lot of people like when Qasem Soleimani got killed you remember mm. there were many uh, apologists in the West going to CNN to many media in the West and saying that Qasem Soleimani was a national hero and look at the rally that rally was actually staged by the Iranian regime and I'm sure you are very familiar about this that how they can they can buy they can sh- sh- close the shops schools, universities, and they can force people to come to the rally. But what happened? What happened? Those people, they didn't turn up to now support the, the regime now. They even had another rally to, share, to say that, you know, we are worried, we are angry about the death of Mahsa Amini, but we're not gonna let people to take to the street and burn headscarves or uh, cut their hair or protest against compulsory hijab. Where are the numbers? Believe me, now, even those who supported the Islamic revolution, they are angry with the mullahs because of witnessing 40 years of corruption. My brother, right now that I'm talking to you, this, this is unbelievable. The relative of all the mullahs living in their luxury lives in America. Right. But they're asking people inside Iran, say, death to America. Those actually send their relatives in America, they go to different media and saying that Masih Alinejad being paid by American government to say no to force a job. Oh, you kidding me? Your children, the children of Javad Zarif, Masume Eftekar, the hostage taker, who took hostage, the American diplomat hostage, her son is in America. The relative of the Ayatollahs are in America. And, and, and this is funny. These uh, officials in Iran, they are begging American government to save them. Here I'm, yes, of course, I'm working as a freelancer for Voice of America, but I'm proudly and loudly uh, saying that I don't want American government to save us. I don't want Secretary Pompeo or Secretary Blinken to come and save Iranian women. Iranian women, Iranian men are brave enough to save themselves, but I'm here actually in America to stop them from saving the Iranian regime. So what do you, so if you compare, say, you know, 2009 Green Revolution that started with a lot of promise that maybe there'd be change, but then eventually there was no change. Is there something unique about the current reality that might serve as the tipping point to free Iran? Do you see something different and written in the walls that makes maybe this this current case the one that frees everybody? Uh, totally, totally. Look, um, you remember that uh, there was a massive protest in Lebanon. There was a massive protest in Iraq. Um, and, and at the same time, there was a massive protest in Iran as well, 2019. The main slogan of three different countries were that our enemy is the Islamic Republic. So the common slogan was death to Khamenei, death to Islamic Republic. Like Lebanese were like saying, get out of here. Right. Iraqian people were saying, get, it, get out of here. Now, this is the difference. Like, Green Movement, mostly people were asking, where, where, are our, where is our vote? And after that, definitely became more radical, but asking, like, you know, we want our country back, saying death to America. But this time, from the first day, from the first day, the slogan was against the Islamic Republic. Like, from the beginning, from the beginning, when Mahsa got uh, killed by hijab police, 
maybe many people in the West were like, okay, now Iranians are in the street to say that we want to get rid of the compulsory job. We want to abolish morality police. Many reformists, many academics, many um, apologists took actually uh, to social media, to media saying that, but they are wrong. So this is the difference. From the beginning, Iranians made up their mind that this is an end. We want to bring this gender apartheid regime down. Let me just give you an example. Um, there was a hashtag which was created by reformist group saying that how I can explain that. They were saying that let's just, you know, um, abolish this dirty morality police. That was the level of their anger. But the level of the anger inside uh, this, the country, the, the people, the TikTok generation, it's different. The girl, Hadith Najafi, took to the street filming herself saying that I took to the street to end this regime. She didn't never get back to home. She got killed. There are another girl who actually, you know, uh, putting her hair up, getting ready to take to the street. She actually filmed herself and saying that I'm against the regime. So the level of the anger is that the young generation, they don't have anything to lose. So that's the difference. This is the first time that Iranian women burning headscarf. You are from Lebanon. You know that headscarf is not just small piece of cloth. No. For those who are forced to wear it. And by the way, just for you to know, 15 years ago, I think I had seen a single woman in Montreal in all my life in Montreal wearing headscarf. Now, if I walk out of my house, probably 70% of the women that I run across that I are wearing hijab. So that doesn't usually bode well for subsequent freedoms. So it's a lot more than just a yeah, innocuous piece of cloth. It is. As you know, that even for the mullahs, you know, the clerics the best. For them, it's like the Berlin Wall. Compulsory job is like the Berlin Wall. If we manage to tear this wall down, the Islamic Republic won't exist. And they know this very well. And, and can I, for, forgive me for interrupting you. Uh, and I've, as, an, as someone who studies evolutionary psychology, so I study, you know, uh, human sexuality and so on. I think the, 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 the most powerful force in nature that men are most afraid of is female sexuality, right? That is the thing that is the most dangerous, more dangerous than tanks, more dangerous than bombs, more dangerous, right? So yeah. if I wish to control a population, I better at least make sure to be controlling female empowerment and female sexuality. Therefore, that's why the hijab is a lot more than just a innocent piece of cloth. I love your point of view that they want to control the whole society so the better tool is women. You're right. Look, um, I'm just asking your audiences now. This is a very simple question. Uh, when you go to Iran or Afghanistan, how do you get that this is Islamic country, that this country is under the control of uh, Islamic states through us, through women? When you see men, no there's no difference between men in Muslim countries. But us, we carry we carry the most visible symbol of a religious dictatorship with us from the age of seven, you know? From the age of seven, we carry their ideology. I mean, our bodies, women's bodies, became a platform for Taliban, for ISIS, for Islamic Republic, for mullahs, for this barbaric uh, 
officials to write their political statements, their uh, ideology on our bodies. So that's why for, for me, I mean, I get very angry when people say that, you know, um, this is this is a choice. Hijab cannot be a choice until the day every single woman have a choice. We don't. I mean, here in the West, like a Barbie girl wearing hijab or yeah. in, they can make news headline for media. But millions of girls being banned from going to school if they don't cover themselves, that was not the news. So now they're hearing us, Mahsa, oh my God, if Mahsa were not killed, I guess that still the media would ignore us. How much? Uh, so I mean, no, answer me. What do you think? What do you think? Well, you look, think uh, if Maxwell was not killed, the media would pay attention like that much? No, no, I, I, they wouldn't. I think you're exactly right. I mean, the, there always has to be some catalyst, right? There always has to be something that sparks the, the indignation and the protest. So regrettably, in this case, Mahsa, uh, you know, her, her life was not in vain because hopefully this will lead to great changes in the future. But uh, why? But why? Because you're from academia. Let, let, let's just let's, let's let's make this clear. Why? Sure. Look. Well, why was Mahsa the specific spark yeah. that started the pro No, no, no. My question is that why academia? Why media uh, wait for women to be victims and then they come up and they say, okay, let's do something. Why when women are warriors, like pushing back, campaigning against compulsory job, uh, warning the whole world about the danger of Islamic laws, the danger of morality police, then why the academia, the media keep silent? But immediately when they see a victim, then they come and, okay, we are part of it. Let's well, just have... So yeah. I think, so in, in, in this book right here, I can't see if you put the parasitic mind, I, I have a whole chapter on, you know, the, the psychology of victimology, right? And, yes. And so, for example, when you look now at trans right, right, trans women who are biological males versus women's right, well, the intelligentsia has decided that trans rights supersede women's rights, right? So therefore, this is why you have a biological male who's six foot four, 240 pounds. He declares himself a woman and now he can defeat in swimming all of the women and all of the intelligentsia. What do they say? His rights, the woman's rights supersede those of the biological women who, who he is crushing, whose rights he is violating, right? Because it doesn't make sense for a biological male to be competing against women. So I think the same thing happens. Islam has now taken the role of the apex victim. Even though around the world, Islam victimizes others, in the West, intelligentsia believes that Islam is under great attack. And if we're going to be progressive, we have to protect Islam. And so therefore, if women are being, I'm sorry? That's a, that's a good question. But why they don't ask, does Islam protect us, the women? You know that for many years we've been criticized. I mean, we've been criticized for many years that why you're anti-Islam? Come on. So what they will say, they will say both uh, Masih and God don't understand true Islam. If only you understood true Islam, you would know that Islam is a feminist religion. You would know that the niqab is a feminist empowering tool because it protects women against the male gaze rather than men looking at you as sexual objects by protecting you, right? In Arabic, you say jawhara. It's, 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 a, it's a jewel. So you are a jewel and imagine how 
powerful and feminist Islam is in that it protects you by erasing your identity. We've this is the hearing. stupidity that I hear from my professor colleagues. Oh my God, we've been hearing this for years and years that this is for your good, that we protect you. That's why we want to control you. We want you to be behind the curtain because then men cannot control themselves and they might rape you. For, the, for this argument that even being supported by the Western feminists and Western academic, I have to say that uh, for this, we don't have even Me Too movement in Iran because the Ayatollah says the same thing, saying that if you get raped and you make an official uh, complaint in Iranian judiciary system, they would definitely put the blame on you. First, they ask you, uh, whether you were properly veiled or yeah. not. If not, then it's your fault. You attracted men to rape you. So, but let me tell you something about those who actually, as you mentioned, saying that you don't know the true Islam. Um, then how come when I say that, according to Islam, if I leave my religion, I'm going to be killed? So this is the true Islam. No, no, you simply didn't read the right Quranic passage properly because you are Farsi, you don't speak Arabic. If only you understood Quranic philology, you would know that what they mean by kill is to love. They mean kill you with caresses. So you are an Islamophobe, Masih. So look, sometimes by saying Islamophobe, they're trying actually to keep us silent. They're trying to impose self-censorship. In my country, I was told that if I show a little bit of my hair, I won't be able to go to a school. I won't be able to get a job. I won't be able to exist. I won't be able to live. I won't be able to hug my family. I go to jail. I get lashes. I get killed. In the West, they say that if you share just these experiences that I mentioned, if you just share them, you cause Islamophobia. <laughs> Come on. It's incredible. Phobia. Yeah, I always say that phobia is irrational fear. But believe me, my fear and the fear of millions of women in Iran and Afghanistan who experienced Sharia laws, who experienced being bitten up, being uh, humiliated, being, you know, uh, like being just sick, sexually harassed. Right. For us, this is a rational fear. I mean, yeah. I don't care whether they, whether they label me Islamophobe or not, but I keep continuing sharing my experience and letting the rest of the world know that we are scared of Islamic ideology. What if, so do, is there, do you think that there are any elements of Islam that are perfectly incompatible in coexisting in the West? Because of course, Islamic immigration to the West has, you know, has exploded. And, you know, many people say, oh, you know, when 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 uh, Muslim people will come to the West, they will adjust and adapt to the to the new values that they have in the West. Whereas other people will say, well, no, the hardliners will say, look, there are certain fundamental features in Islamic law and Islamic values that are completely inconsistent with the West. Where do you fall on this? Do, do, do you, uh, go ahead. I mean, look, let me first share my own story. When I left Iran in the West. I used to wear my version of hijab and I used to say that this is my choice, you know, this is, but this is clear that when you grow up in a Muslim uh, community, when you grow up in a country that you're, you're being told by your community, by your religion, by your 
educational system, by everything, telling you that if you don't cover yourself, you will be hanged with your hair. So you have only two options, burning in hell or wearing hijab. Yeah, you, you meant it, by the way, from the, the Quranic edict that you will literally be hanging in the gates of hell by your hair. That's that's what you're referring oh, I, to. You're Islamophobic because you know Quran, you read Arabic, and exactly. you know everything about it. So you see, um, in the West, when I uh, was actually saying to other people that, no, this is my choice, or this is like, you know, part of our culture, this is like, but I was lying, clearly lying, because I grew up in this mentality that, okay, I don't want to go to hell. I don't want to lose my community. I don't want to break my mother's heart. I don't want to. Uh, so you see, there's so many social pressure. There's so many emotional pressure. There's so many like uh, pressure from what you have been brainwashed from the age of. So that is why I'm not even judging those who still claim that this is my choice. I want them. I invite them to let us talk, right. to let us share our own experiences, which is going to actually give a better picture to the young generation in the West, to the nine-year-old girl in America that I see, I see around my 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 uh, my house in Brooklyn, many girls from the age of seven, nine, eight, they've been completely veiled. Right. They cannot choose what to wear. They cannot they cannot make decision over their own body. And then when you talk to them, they say that this you know I I choose to wear it. And it just reminds me of my childhood. Right. So that is why I say that in the West, when we talk about Islamic laws, we, we're, we're not just fighting against the Islamic states, Islamic fanatic, Islamic regime, Islamic. No, we're fighting with the, another narrative in the West that trying to actually um, trying to actually keep us silent in the name of Islamophobia, which, as you know, that Ilhan Omar came out with a new legislation. Have you heard of that? I, I think so, but say it to the viewers. Yeah, the, Elhan Omar, I wrote an article for Washington Post to criticize uh, the legislation by asking some questions. I asked some clear questions that your legislation saying that you're trying to gather information in the West from those who are causing Islamophobia. My brother, what does it mean? It means that you're in danger. They try to monitor you, find out whether uh, your book, your activities, your criticism causes homophobia or not. So, and then I ask clear questions that if criticizing Taliban, if criticizing Islam, if criticizing Islamic Republic, if criticizing the laws of uh, like uh, Iran and Afghanistan, which allow people uh, to go in public and harass them and saying that cover yourself otherwise, you deserve to be killed. Are these Islamophobic? Are these causing Islamophobia? You know what? Instead of answering my question, she, she just, just said you're Islamophobic. Yes. She just said that you're Islamophobic. She wrote to Washington Post saying that Massey is a mouthpiece of right wing. I don't care about right wing. I don't care about left wing. I don't care about liberal or Democrat or Republican. I care about my body, my choice which you says that loudly here, you say that loudly here to get votes from, you know, your followers, your fellow feminists. I care about my body, my dignity, my freedom. And Ilhan Omar doesn't even dare to talk to me. She just 
bullied me and shared smear campaign against me. Why? So here's, I'm asking you here to speculate because it's hard to know what's in her heart versus yours. But how could it be? So, you know, you come to the West, you start off by, you know, timidly wearing the version of the hijab, but eventually you free yourself from that. Ilhan Omar is literally rescued from a horrible camp where she was. She's brought to the United States where you you give her all of the freedoms. She's now one of the most powerful people in the United States by virtue of serving in the House of Representatives. And yet every single word that comes out of her mouth is one that denigrates the, the society that let her in, that gave her the freedoms. How do you explain such a, a, a twisted psychology? Look, it's clear that this is hypocrisy. And for her, her political agenda is much more important than her sister's. Right. She just claimed that she's a feminist. <laughs> many of uh, people, many of them, like Linda Sarsour. Oh, yes. Ilhan Omar. Like many of them, they claim that they are feminists. Rashida Tlaib. Yes, but I want to actually give you some example that um, when they labeled me saying that you're Islamophobic, you're um, right wing, you're mouthpiece of Trump, you're being paid by U.S. government. First of all, all of them being paid by U.S. government, they receive their money from uh, U.S. taxpayers as well. Second of all, second of all, which is very, very important that when Muslim ban happened, you and all the world, you not got united, you condemned Muslim ban. But at the same time, which I did as well, I condemned Muslim ban. But at the same time, there is another thing which I created, uh, I, I named it women ban. There is women ban, clearly women ban. All women are banned from entering Iran or Afghanistan if they don't cover themselves. Right. So you care about Muslim ban in the West? but you don't care about women ban in the Middle East. It's none of your business, or even you empower our oppressors to ban us more, to kill us. How? By keeping us silent. Not only that, by legitimizing our oppressors, by obeying compulsory hijab laws in your meeting with our oppressors. Right. I'm gonna give you an example, Robina Amiri, the US envoy for Afghanistan. In her meeting with Taliban, she obeyed compulsory hijab laws. The high representative of European Parliament, Catherine Ashton, Federico Mogherini, the Swedish feminist, uh, you know, right. the most uh, feminist government cabinet are Swedish. So I joined them. I joined them to condemn Muslim ban. But they didn't join me to condemn compulsory hijab. You know, they invited me to go to European Parliament to give a talk to condemn uh, Burkini ban. I remember that when I was there, I hijacked the event. I told them, you're hypocrites. You invited me to condemn Burkini ban, but you yourself, you went to Iran. You obeyed compulsory hijab. What is the difference between my body in the Middle East and your body in the West? Because they're being compassionate and tolerant and respectful of religious sensibilities. Whereas you're in Arabic, you say, you're, you're brutal, right? Oh, yes. Oh my God. Oh, I love you. You're right. You're right. You're right. Look, some in the West, they pay money to make fiction, like right. the Handmaid's Tale, about a bunch of uh, like white uh, women being uh, second-class citizens, receiving lashes, being uh, like uh, treated like slaves. So they pay 
to watch this entertainment. But this is happening. This is happening to us women in Iran in the Middle East. We are from Gilead. We are being treated like women of Gilead. But they don't care because of our color, because we deserve, you know, we are coming from Middle East, we're Bashi. So we deserve to be uh, raped. Incredible. But oh, this is this entertainment, The Handmaid's Tale yeah. by Margaret Atwood. Oh, this is now happening to white women. This is really bad. But when it happened to women of Afghanistan, they're not allowed to go to school. It's okay. For women of Iran getting killed, it's okay. It's their culture. Do, do, you, no. feel, do you feel that? So if I look at you, uh, Miriam, uh, what's her last name? I can't remember her. Let me just check. Mir- oh, Miriam Namazi. <laughs> Yeah, 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 Yasmin Muhammad, you know, all of these people, uh, you know, Ayan Hirsi Ali. Do you think that there is, even if only symbolically, do you think there is a unique strategic element to some of the biggest voices that are trying to fight against some of these regimes being women? Is there something unique in the fact that many of the strongest voices are precisely the women who've lived under these regimes? Or do you think that, uh, you know, there's, men are likely to be just as persuasive in trying to spread the message. We're getting there. We're getting there. Men are right now that I'm talking to you are alongside women in the streets. Bravely, many of them got killed. So that's why I want to give the credit to women inside Iran, not us outside Iran. They're leading the movement, which I always say that. So actually, I'm trying to show the rest of the world that you're attacking like activists, like Mariam Namazi, Masih Ali Najad, Yasmin Muhammad. But what are you going to do with women inside Iran and Afghanistan? Right. Who are pushing back Taliban, who are pushing back the Islamic Republic, but is still practicing their civil disobedience and saying that we don't want Islamic laws. We don't want Islam to make decision over our own body, over our... This is the true feminism. Not that what we exactly. see in the West. Not what we see in the West. You know, I'm, I'm sure that you're following women of Afghanistan as well, yes? Sure, sure. I get goosebumps when I talk about them. Mm. Woman was just, uh, a woman was holding a, a paper and then she was being attacked by Talib who was holding gun. Right. And I was like, what an unfair battle. You, you, you actually just gave me goosebumps. Uh, what a unfair battle because it just break my heart. And, and actually that speaks to a very important point. Forgive me for interrupting you because I often receive, you know, I, I fight against uh, all of the, you know, political correctness and the cancel culture and academia and so on. And when people write to me, I get, I mean, literally thousands and thousands of people who write to me and say, but, you know, I'm afraid to speak out because I might lose my job because I might be unfriended. And then I often will say to them, what do you then think about the people who are courageous in the Middle East who face much greater threats than you do, right? It's not just about losing your cushy job at Google. I understand people don't want to lose their jobs. But the woman who can stand up to the Taliban is exhibiting exponentially greater courage than you because you're afraid you might not be invited to the cool party in Manhattan. And so I try to relativize the threats because people in the West are so afraid to speak out. Well, if you're afraid to speak out here, what about the women in Iran? How heroic are they? This is is a total betrayal. Let Let me be very clear. This is a total betrayal in the West. For the fear of losing your job, you keep silent. While women in Iran and Afghanistan taking to the streets, facing guns and bullets, criticizing the Islamic states, the Islamic regime. This is not acceptable. Look, I myself, I lost many of my friends 
a lot of my friends, they worry to be in touch with me because I live in the safe house now. I'm being watched by FBI because of being target of the kidnapping plot, assassination plots. Many of my friends saying that, you know, um, we're worried now. But I say to them, you can, I went to, oh my God, let me tell you something. I was invited to go to AP uh, because one of the Persian um, TV invited me to give a, to give us, to give an interview. When I was there in the building, oh my God, they told me that, wait a minute, we have to call our boss. That was just a week after when a man with a loaded gun got arrested in front of my house and the FBI announced that. And then they said that we have to check because we're worried for our staff. And I'm thanked to them at the end, they let me in, but they told me this, that because you are being followed by the Islamic Republic, we're worried for our staff, we might cancel uh, you your interview. They did this to Yasmin Muhammad. They did to, they did this to many other who speak up against Islamism, saying that because your life is under threat, we are worried that we might get harmed, we might get under attack as well. So you see, instead of canceling the killers, like Ibrahim Raisi and uh, the member of Revolutionary Guards, they're giving them platform. Amazing. They interview them, but they cancel us, some of them, not just because of Islamophobia, they said that because you are speaking up against Islamism, so maybe because they follow you, maybe we lose our job or we lose our life. And the, you know, I've always said that cowardice should be added to the seven deadly sins, right? Because, because so much of the problems that we see today stem from people being cowardly. They're, they're afraid of their shadow. And I always tell people, I'd rather live standing tall with dignity for five minutes than to live 500 years as a cowering coward, correct? That's a, very, that's a very good point. I think we have to leave it here because I always say that um, they did everything to keep me silent, everything. They brought my sister on TV to disown me publicly. Wow. They brought uh, my mother to me saying that, let's go to Turkey to reunite. Then my brother exposed that this is a, you know, this is a trick from Iranian regime. They want to kidnap you from Turkey. They put my brother for exposing this plan in prison for two years. They arrested him in front of his two small children. They have arrested 29 women of anti-compulsory hijab campaign, and they forced many of them to go on TV to do forced confession against me, saying that Massey is being paid by U.S. government. We're not going to follow her. Massey is a nasty woman. Now we regret we're not going to be. So you see, they did everything. Send someone to kidnap me from New York to kill me. They made a law saying anyone send videos to Massey will be charged up to 10 years prison. They bully me every day on social media. I receive sexual harassment, online harassment. Many of the apologists in the West every day sending letters to organizations, uh, to media, to uh, to my uh, those who interview me that Massey is right wing. And I clearly and loudly say that I'm a true feminist. I criticize the right wing, the left wing, who actually uh, forget about the rights of Iranian women and women of Afghanistan. But for all this harassment, being bullied, being canceled, I'm not scared. I'm not scared and I'd rather die. I'd rather die, but not witnessing that the free world, the free world is watching the Islamic Republic and Taliban killing women, killing people. You know, for me, the most scary thing is not just uh, being killed. It's that thing that the Islamic states, 
the dictators around the world are more united than democratic countries, and they will end democracy for sure. Many people might think that, okay, this isn't in the Middle East. This is in Iran. Let's just leave it there. Islamic ideology is like coronavirus. It's going to infect the rest of the world. I hear you. I know that you have a very busy media day, so I want to be respectful of your time. Do you want to use this opportunity as we end our chat? Although, of course, I could keep you for four hours uh, uh, to promote anything, a, a GoFundMe yes. site, anything. Take it away. Masih. There is no GoFundMe. I don't want to promote any funding. I want you, every single person in the West, to understand that we, the women of Iran, we, the women of Afghanistan, not only fighting for ourselves. We are fighting to protect democracy, to protect the democratic world from Islamism, from Islamic states and Islamic regime and Islamic terrorists. Now Iranian women are getting killed in the street. Iranian men are getting killed in the street because they believe that the brutal death of Mahsa Amini is becoming a turning point for them and a tipping point for Islamic states. So join us on October 1st. We should see a women's march alongside men everywhere in the West. You know, you talk to the street when George Floyd brutally got killed. You got united to condemn that. This is now your turn. This is your time in the West, across the globe. On 1st October, take to the streets and support your sisters. Do not allow Iranian regime to kill more people. If you take to the streets, if you show your solidarity, if you take a strong action, if you send email to your senator, to your representative, and telling them stop negotiating with the murderers. Instead, recognize the voice of Iranian people to end this gender apartheid regime. Then you're standing in the right side of the history. You, you. He you heard it from Masih. Thank you so much. Stay on the line so I could tell you goodbye offline. Thank you so much. May your voice continue to amplify. Thank you for the work that you do. Thank you for coming on the show. What a pleasure to meet you. Thank you so much. And don't forget, together... We are stronger. Thank you. Thank you. Cheers. Okay.